0: Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Chapter 30, as we are Navigating through the book of Genesis in our exciting time with Jacob, as we've been looking at over the past few weeks. Genesis chapter 30. Let me begin by telling you an imaginary story. This is an imaginary story about a man named Joe. Joe claimed to be a Christian. And he said he believes in the Bible, but Joe always lives in fear that something's going to go wrong in his life. And so let me tell you the story about Joe. It's Friday the 13th, and Joe gets up to go to work. And the first thing that Joe does is he gets out his lucky rabbit's foot and begins stroking his rabbit's foot for good luck. Then he goes into the bathroom to get ready for work, and his wife Accidentally drops the mirror and it crashes, and he screams, Seven years, bad luck. And then on his way to work, he's driving in his car and a black cat crosses his path. And then it begins to rain, and he gets soaked because he doesn't have an umbrella. And he goes to work and he gets inside his office, and one of his coworkers opens the umbrella inside and he gasps with horror. And then his boss comes in and says, you've got a report due at noon, can you get it done? And Joe crosses his fingers behind his back saying, sure, I can get it done. Goes into his office and knocks on wood twice to make sure that he's okay. Then he ends up going to the mail room and accidentally has to walk under a ladder and almost faints. He goes home exhausted, scared to death, wondering what his life is going to be like the next day because he's living in a web of superstition superstition it's interesting when you think about the oddity of superstition there have been many famous athletes that have been very superstitious over the years one of my favorite players is, is michael jordan i don't know if you know this about michael jordan but underneath his bulls jersey shorts he would wear his north carolina shorts every game as a good luck charm to make sure that he would win Jason Terry is another NBA basketball player. He has to eat chicken before every game. He has to wear five socks before every game. And the night before every game, he wears the opposing team's shorts to bed. So like if he was playing the Bulls, he'd wear the Bulls' shorts to bed. Anybody ever heard of Turk Wendell? He's a baseball player. He's another quirky Major League Baseball player. Here's what he would do. He would chew licorice as a pitcher... He would spit it out, he would run back to the dugout, he would take a leap over the baseline, and he would brush his teeth, and then he'd come back out between each inning as a good luck charm to make sure that he was a good pitcher. So there's some weird things that happen in relationship to superstition. Now, what's amazing to me is how many Christians operate with this worldview of luck or superstition, are doing all of these weird things. And they may give lip service to the sovereignty of God, but they don't live like it. Now, why do I want to draw your attention to superstition this morning under this dark cloud of superstition? Well, as we're going to see this morning in our text, Jacob, Leah, Rachel, and even Laban give in to this whole idea of superstition. Now, let's let's talk about where we left off last week. If you remember last week... Jacob was smitten by this drop-dead gorgeous woman, Rachel. And he elevated her to this position of an idol in his life, and he loved her, and, and he was totally enamored with her. But then Laban tricked him, if you remember, and he ended up having to marry Leah. And Leah was the older daughter, and she was the homely daughter. She was the one that Jacob didn't really love, and so he had to work 14 years for the wife that he really loved. And so Jacob's got two wives, Rachel and Leah, He loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. And the irony is, is that Leah is able to bear him children, as we saw last week, the first four children, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, but Rachel is barren. And so it's interesting. Leah, at the, at the end of her, of her journey last week with Judah, she finally resigned herself to trust in the Lord, and she had that breakthrough moment where she said, I'm, I'm going to stop, stop trusting in the ability to, to make babies, to get Jacob to love me, and I'm finally going to trust in the Lord, and Judah's the fourth-born child, and we know that the line of Jesus comes through Judah. But let me just say this loud and clear, and, I, and we, need to, we need to understand this as we look at this, these narratives in Genesis. Just because a person has an encounter with with the living god does not mean that they won't fail they won't sin and they won't do some pretty stupid things cuz you can begin to get really frustrated with Jacob and his family and you'd think are these christians yes they're christians behaving badly if if you want to say that so we come to the soap opera again and nothing ever goes good when you have two wives just just a word of advice out there men don't take two wives Nothing ever goes good when you have two wives. So here's what's going on. Rachel can't bear children. Leah can. There's conflict between these two wives. And then there's this issue of superstition that clouds the entire chapter 30. So chapter 30 in Genesis is really divided up into two sections. Verses 1 through 23, we see the interactive play between Rachel and Leah. And then in verses 25 through 43, we see the interaction between Jacob and Laban again. So let's dive into the text. Let's look at this first section, Genesis chapter 30, verses 1 through 23. Let's read this together. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. He said, am I in the place of God? who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here's my servant Bilhah, go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and he's also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, "With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister to have prevailed." She called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Okay, got four wives now. Okay, just hope you're tracking there. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, "Good fortune has come." So she called his name Gad. And Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Then Rachel said, Then... He may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband, she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I've borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulon. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Now, if you remember from last week, Leah is the one that's fertile. Leah is the one that can produce children, and she's already produced four children for Jacob. And Rachel, the drop-dead gorgeous one, can't. So she gets jealous of her sister. Which is kind of ironic when you think about it. Why would Rachel be jealous of Leah? Rachel was the beautiful one. Rachel was the one that had all of Jacob's attention. Leah was the forgotten one. She was the one that was pushed aside. But notice in her desperation, she comes to Jacob there in verse 1 and says, Give me children or I die. I mean, she's desperate. You've got to give me children. I'm desperate. My sister's beating me in this game, Jacob. She's producing more children. You've got to give me children or I die. And she's beginning to turn on Jacob and kind of blame him. And Jacob gets a little angry. He turns to her and says, well, now, wait a minute. I'm not God. I can only do so much, woman. I'm probably sure that's what the translation probably doesn't say that there. But I'm, I'm sure Jacob's a little upset with her. I can only do so much. I can't give you what, what God has withheld. And so Rachel gets an idea, an idea that we've seen before in Genesis, haven't we? I can't conceive, let me get my servant girl to go in and maybe we can produce a child. Remember Sarah and Hagar way back a few months ago where Sarah said, let's get Hagar to come in, this Egyptian slave, and then um, Ishmael was born and we had all these problems in Abraham's family. Now it's happening again. And so she gives Jacob her concubine and she produces two children dan and naphtali and this idea catches on that leah says that's a good idea let me give let me give jacob my concubine and maybe we'll produce even more children and and, and sure enough gad and asher are born and ironically gad's name when gad is born what does she say look there in the, in the text when gad is born she says let me find the text here real quick it's in verse 11 leah said good fortune." Has come, So she called his name Gad. Gad, She's really, a Hebrew translation would be like, good luck has come to me. I'm lucky. Look how lucky I am. It's the first little hint there that we've got luck, we've got superstition, we've got all these issues related to to luck. So there's this sibling rivalry between these two daughters, and then Reuben, the oldest son, comes in from the field, and he comes in with these mandrakes. And Rachel says, I want the mandrakes. And Leah says, you can't have the mandrakes. What are you gonna, you've already taken Jacob from me. Are you going to take away my son's mandrakes? So they're fighting over mandrakes. And at this time, you're probably saying, what's a mandrake? What's a mandrake? Well, I'm glad you asked, Pastor Sean. I'm going to tell you what a mandrake is. In Hebrew, it's translated love fruit. In ancient cultures, it was considered an aphrodisiac that was supposed to superstitiously enable a woman to conceive. The Greek goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love, the goddess of, uh, of all those types of things, of beauty, she was called the lady of the mandrake. The Greeks nicknamed it the love apple. So a mandrake is some type of superstitious plant that's supposed to help a woman conceive. And Rachel's desperate for this love apple, for this love plant, for this superstitious plant that's going to give her, th- this magical plant that's going to give her the ability to conceive. Now, now we're going to be leaving for India this afternoon. I'm reminded of the times that we've been to India, just how superstitious the people in the villages really are. There's a lot of people in those villages that suffer from ailments, they suffer from sicknesses, they suffer from barrenness, and they'll go to all types of lengths to get help. They'll go find the witch doctor, maybe two villages away, and they will bring the witch doctor in and try to consult a witch doctor. They may put talismans up in their house. They may sacrifice a chicken on the side of the road. They're going to try anything they can try superstitiously, pagan, paganly, to try to fix their problem. And you would, to some extent, expect that, from people living in an unreached people group that have been steeped in animism and Hinduism for for thousands of years, for generations. But here you've got God's people putting all their hope in a magic love fruit. And these two ladies are fighting over it. And there's really a lack of godly leadership in Jacob here. Is Jacob rising to be the godly husband that God has called him to be? No, do we see him praying on behalf of his wife? Do we see him interceding on behalf of his wife? Do we see him leading his wife? No. He's probably gotten to the point, and we can't read into Jacob's mind here, but he's probably gotten to the point where it's no use trying anymore with these two women. I've kind of given up. Let's just let them do whatever they need to do. As long as the house is clean and the kids are okay, let the women do what they want to do. I think that's what Jacob's probably thinking here. And then what ends up happening is Leah says, okay, Rachel, you want a mandrake? There's a price tag on it. Would you let me have a night with my husband? Which obviously, we probably assume Rachel's the one that controls the bedroom here. And so Leah says, "If you allow me to have Jacob for a night, I'll give you the mandrake." And I'm sure I'm not sure if they shook on it or what, but she hired out Jacob. So Jacob comes back in from the field and she goes out to him Leah, and she says, "Hey, in verse 16 she says when jacob came from the field in the evening leah went out to meet him and said you must come into me for i've hired you with my son's mandrake so he lay with her that night it's kind of an awkward situation here it's really sex for hire here it's weird it's a weird situation and here's the irony what's the irony of this whole thing who can't conceive rachel what does she take a love plant she still can't conceive. Leah, who doesn't take the love plant, who's, who's the neglected wife, ends up conceiving again some more sons, Issachar, Zebulon, and a daughter, Dinah. Now, this is dysfunctionality, if there ever was dysfunctionality in a family. Okay, you got two sisters that are both wives of the same man, who are giving their concubines to the same man, and they're arguing over an aphrodisiac to somehow give them the power to procreate Th- this is dysfunctionality this is not a go- a godly situation but yet in the midst of all of this look at verse 22 God shows grace it's amazing you read these I read these stories and I think why in the world would God show grace to these people if I were God I would write these people off a long time ago and said you guys you, ha- you guys had your chance I'm moving on with a different family. Let me find a more functional family here to deal with. And so we need to realize that this gives us great hope when we see that God shows grace to this family. Look at verse 22. God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her, and he opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Now, did the magical mandrake open up Rachel's womb and give her the ability to conceive? No, the text here says God remembered her, God listened to her, and God opened her womb. God is sovereignly working out his purposes in this story in the midst of extreme sin, which is an amazing thing to think about. And she conceives Joseph. So at this point, there are ten children of jacob plus 11 joseph this is the beginning of the 12 tribes of israel this is the beginning of the nation of israel does it start well does it start all peachy keen how does the nation of israel start jealousy strife dysfunctionality rebellion conflict that's going to mark the nation of israel really throughout the rest of the bible if you trace the story of the nation of Israel through the rest of the Old Testament, you find that all of these nations, these tribes are warring each other, especially in the book of Judges. And then what ends up happening is they split into two nations and there's, there's civil war and the northern kingdom breaks off from the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom basically goes on into oblivion and the southern kingdom goes into to, to Babylonian exile. And so we've got to ask ourselves a question. Does God bless this family because they deserve it? Did they somehow have such a great spiritual resume that they gave to God to say, God, you have to bless us because look at how stellar we are. No, God does not bless them because he has to bless them. God blesses them because he made a covenant with Abraham and a covenant with Isaac and a covenant with Jacob and God does not break his promise. God is true to his word. It's not because of their faithfulness or lack thereof that God is true to his word. It's because of God's character and who God is. So can dysfunctional sin and superstitious dabblings of desperate people thwart or stop or frustrate God's sovereign plan? And we have to say no. God's going to work out his sovereign plan of redemption in the midst of these sinful people. He's going to orchestrate things to make sure his will comes to pass. And we stop and think, why would God ever do this for Jacob? Why would God bless Jacob? Let me just ask you guys a question. Have we seen anything good with Jacob so far, really? I mean, not really, have we? And you think, God, why would you bless him? Why would you work in his life? He's a passive husband, He's kind of aloof, he's a trickster, he, he's a manipulator. Why, God, would you work in Jacob's life? You need to give up on Jacob, God. And the moment we say that, what do we have to do? We have to say, wait a minute. If God gives up on Jacob, with whom he made a covenant, then what hope is there for us? So, so we don't want God to give up on Jacob. Because if God gives up on Jacob, then where does that leave us? Because I will say it again and again. We are all Jacobs in this room. We are liars, we are cheats, we are, we, we, are, we are wretches to the core and none of us deserves God's grace and none of us deserves God's love and so for the fact that God to, to continue to love us in the midst of our sin shows amazing grace. Now, let's conti- continue reading this saga. That's the first half of this chapter. Jealous sisters fighting over a love fruit. Exciting stuff, right? Well, let's continue to see more exciting dabblings into the superstitious... Let's continue reading. Let's pick up in verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, now remember who Laban is. Laban is Rachel and Leah's father, Jacob's uncle, who he's been working for for the past 14 years. He goes to him and says, Send me away, that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I've served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I've given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. And Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how, you, how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, "'What shall I give you?' And Jacob said, "'You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen.'" Laban said, good, let it be as you've said. But that same day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks." And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled and spotted, and Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the front of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whatever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the trough before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now, what in the world's going on here? Laban's a swindler, Laban's a cheat. We saw last week how he cheated um, Jacob and he had to work for 14 years. Okay, so the 14 years is over. And Rachel, the one whom he loved, is finally, after all these years, born Joseph. And so it's probably a good time for Jacob to go to Laban and say, Hey, Laban, listen, I've been working for you for 14 years. Don't you think it's about time now that I can take my whole family and my flocks, and can I go back home? And do you think Laban's going to say, Sure. Yeah, go ahead. What does Laban do? Look at verse 27. Verse 27. In verse 27, Laban says, you know what? I've learned by divination that the Lord's blessed me because of you. Now, what does it mean that Laban learned by divination? I don't know what your translations say. The ESV says divination. It could say by sorcery, by superstition. The text here does not tell us exactly what he did to learn by divination, but I'm sure it wasn't that he prayed to the living God. He sees Jacob somewhat have a charmed life. And you've got, since you've come into my life, Jacob, I've been blessed. So there's something going on with you. So he goes and consults a medium or he does something very sorceristic. I don't know what he does. The text doesn't tell us. But we know this, is not sorcery or divination forbidden in the Bible? yes. When the law comes around later on in redemptive history, in Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12, God tells the nation of Israel how he feels about divination. He says this in Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For, whatever, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So, so Laban here emerges as an even more wicked man because he learns by divination. And basically, Laban's always thinking about profit. He says, Jacob, name your price. What do you want me to give you? What's your price? And Jacob's smart by now, isn't he? Jacob's learned a few things. After living for 14 years with this man, don't you think Jacob knows a con man? It takes one to know one. Jacob's a con man. Laban's a con man. And so Jacob says, I'm not going to... He's got something up his sleeve here. Because if if I give in to Laban, he's either going to outsmart me, he's going to trick me, he's going to prevent me from going back. This is not going to go good. Somehow I'd been indebted to him. He's going to swindle me. This is not going to go good. And so what Jacob says is, I'm not going to take anything from you, but here's what I'd like to do, Laban. Let's go out to your flocks, and here's what I'll do. All the abnormally colored goats and sheep, I'll take the abnormally colored ones, and that'll be my price. And I will just take them as my flock, and I'll try to breed them, and, and I'll try to, to, to live off those flocks. And what is Laban thinking? That's an awesome deal because, number one, there's something about animal husbandry here that I don't, really don't know. Some of you know more about animal husbandry than I do about cattle and, and stuff, but probably this was a good deal to Laban because the, the speckled ones and the spotted ones were probably seen as inferior. But what does Laban do? Once they shake on it, what does Laban do? He goes out and takes them all out of his flock. So he basically, gets a running start on Jacob to where Jacob's behind already. And so what does Jacob do? Jacob goes and he gets those abnormally colored flocks. And then look at verse 37. You may think, what? All right, I, don't, I have no idea what mandrakes is. I have no idea what white sticks in front of a feeding trough is. Welcome to the world of the ancient Near East superstition. Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white sticks in front of them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks and the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred there, when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth stripes, speckled, and spotted. In that culture, it was folklore, it was superstitious, that you would have these white sticks and put them in front of the feeding trough and it was supposed to, again, like the mandrake, allow these animals to breed faster, to breed stronger. Okay, so, so think about what's going on in this text. The ladies are using mandrakes to somehow get supernatural, superstitious ability to, to get pregnant. Laban's learning by sorcery that Jacob is a wealthy man and now Jacob goes out and gets these white sticks and puts them in front of the feeding trough hoping that the animals are going are gonna to breed. And what happens? Something amazing happens. They breed stronger, more virile. They become a huge flock and they actually produced against what basically maybe what Laban thought was going to happen and actually he had a huge flock a strong animals now was it due to magic sticks that this happened or was it god working out his sovereign purposes verse 43 ends chapter 30 with a statement about jacob jacob the man increased greatly and had large flocks female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys so it's becoming a small nation now. He's got his 11 sons and a lot of servants and a lot of flocks and even camels, which is, he's a man of wealth now. He's a man of, of significance. And so it's interesting because Jacob tried to fool Laban with white sticks. You know what the word Laban means? The, the name Laban means white. So Laban is tricked with white sticks remember last week i said jacob got jacob by laban this week laban got laban by jacob if that makes sense to you it's kind of a play on words in the hebrew language these two guys are trying to outsmart each other now how more pagan can these people be mandrakes white sticks divination it's just crazy superstition now obviously laban is a pagan I don't think we can see any evidence of Laban being a man of God here. He's a pagan man, so you'd expect it from him. But, but from Jacob and from Rachel and from Leah, why in the world are they succumbing to superstition? So let me ask it again. Is God frustrated? Or is God's plan stopped? Or is God's plan thwarted somehow by the superstitious sin of his people? Or will God accomplish his redemptive purpose? Now, here's a temptation when you come to the end of the story. If you're tracking the story and and you miss it, here's what you may come away with the story thinking. This is a great story because I can be superstitious and I can be disobedient and I can not follow God's will and God's going to bless me anyway. So there's free license to do a bunch of wacky things because in the end, God's going to give it to me. It pays to disobey because God blesses those who really do stupid things. Now, let me just, let me just stop and pa- put a pause button. Does God sometimes bless us for doing stupid things? Sometimes. Is that an excuse for us to go out and do stupid things? No, nowhere in the Bible are we ever given permission to go into sin, to go into rebellion, to do anything stupid or sinful or rebellious just because we hope God's going to work it out or or God's going to make good on it. And so we sometimes look at these, these stories in the New Testament and we think it's a morality tale. Bad behavior equals God's blessing, or good behavior equals God's blessing. And we have to remember that sometimes the narrator here, Moses, is, is telling us what happened. He's not giving us a template or a description of how to live our lives and get God's blessing. So one thing that we need to understand here is, is a term, it's a theological term, that we often don't talk about. It's sometimes put on the back burner in churches, but I think it's important that you be exposed to this word. You may have heard this word before but maybe you don't really know what it means. It's called the providence of God. The providence of God. God's providence. What what do we mean? What does the Bible mean when it speaks of the providence of God? The, The providence of God is simply this. God is sovereignly working out His plan behind the scenes, orchestrating details, bringing about his accomplished purposes, sometimes we're not aware of this, but in the end, God's going to get his way. God is moving history, God is moving time, God is moving your life to his ordained ends in his providence. Now, probably one of the most beautiful confessional statements of God's providence is found in the Heidelberg Catechism. So let me give you question 27. In the Heidelberg Catechism, and it, it asks the question, what do you mean by the providence of God? And it gives a great answer. This is how that confessional statement gives, gives the answer. Here's the answer. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby as it were by His hand, He upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yes, and all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So let's apply that to what we just saw here with this story in Genesis chapter 30. Did Rachel conceive by magical mandrakes? No. It was the fatherly hand of a sovereign God opening her womb, moving behind the scenes to enable her to conceive Joseph. Did Jacob's uh, flocks increase because of the white magical sticks? No. No god's fatherly hand moved in the background to bring it about and so the 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 confession says nothing happens by chance it's amazing how many christians i hear say things like man i was sure lucky that that happened as a christian do we believe in luck no we believe in a providential god who rules and reigns with his fatherly hand behind the scenes now we may not understand everything that he's doing And it may seem confusing to us at times, but nothing happens by chance. His fatherly hand is orchestrating things for our good and for his glory. Now, sometimes we don't know how those two things come together, our good and his glory, but we know he does it. Now, that's what providence is. Now, the second question in the catechism, okay, if that's what it is, then what does it mean in our lives? How does this work out in our lives? How does this give us comfort? How how do we... How do we live in light of God's providence? Well, let me give you the second question, question 28 from the Heidelberg Catechism. Question, what advantage is it to know that God is created and by His providence upholds all things? And here's the answer. What advantage is it to us? Here's the answer. That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in, In our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are in his hand, that without his will they cannot so much as move. Interesting things the catechism says there, that we may be patient in adversity. Anybody here patient in adversity? Nothing happens randomly. When you go through adversity, when you go through trials... It's not just the universe doing its weird thing. God is either ordaining it or allowing it for His purposes. And one of those purposes is to grow your character. Listen to what James says. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? To be joyful when we meet trials of various kinds, meaning we're going to have all different types of trials and tribulations. But we're to count it joy. Why? For... There's the the purpose clause, verse 3, 4, because, here's why. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So God ordains trials in your life to grow your faith so that you're more steadfast, you're more firm, you're more complete, you're more mature, and you're to count it all joy. And so nothing happens by chance. And so when you go through trials... When you go through tribulations, when you go through hard times, where do you turn? Do you you turn to superstition? Do you turn to yourself? Do you turn to all these weird things? Or do you turn to the Lord for help, knowing that it's His purpose that's being done in your life, and He's in charge. He's in control. He's the one that's guiding your life. But it also says there that we might be thankful in prosperity. God's providence also means that when things go well for you, it's God too sometimes we think it's us that makes things go well. I, I, did, I worked really hard, and so, therefore, things are going well for me. If things are going well for you, it's because God is allowing those things or ordaining those things to go well for you in good times. And sometimes we think that God is obligated to give us stuff because we're all that. Newsflash, are we all that? No, he's all that, but we're not all that. 1 Thessalonians five sixteen through 18 Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for it is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances, when things are going well or when things are going bad. Give thanks in all circumstances because in all circumstances God is sovereignly working out His purposes. It's His providential hand. It's His hand of providence that's working in your lives. And when Jacob prospered, was it because he deserved to be prospered? Was it because he put those white sticks in front of those, those goats? Or is it because God was being merciful to him? It was a sheer act of mercy. You see, when you have a strong belief in God's providence, it doesn't lead you to sin. It leads you to trust. Even when you don't see the full picture, because you know your God has made a covenant with you the way he's made it with Jacob, and he will never leave and forsake you. And the things that are going on in your life is because he is either allowing those or ordaining those things. Don't ask me how that all works. I just know that God's in charge of it all. So whatever befalls you and me, it's because it's God's plan. And it's guiding us to trust in him more, to love him more, to seek his face more, not to go into rebellion, not to be superstitious, not to do all these weird things, but to trust in him. I'll say it again. We're all Jacobs in this room. Not one of us here can stand up and say that I'm worthy to be saved. No, as a matter of fact, all of us, as the song said before, we we all ran our hellbound race. We're all under God's wrath without Jesus. But thanks be to God that He sent Jesus Christ to be the perfect Son of God that lived the perfect life that none of us could ever live. 33 years of perfection in thought, in word, in deed, living the life that none of us could ever live, Jesus in the flesh, God. And then, on the cross, when he died, stretching out his arms and his legs to being nailed on the cross, he took the full punishment that we deserved in our place. He died the death that all of us deserved to die. All of us deserve to die on that cross because of our sin that separates us from a holy God. And so none of us has lived the perfect life that Jesus ever lived, and all of us deserve to die the death that Jesus died. And so the glory of the gospel is that Jesus came in our place to live the life we never could and to die the death we all should. And when he was nailed to the cross, he cried out, It is finished, paying in full what you and I could never pay. And then they put him in a tomb, and three days later he rose again, and he's alive, he's the King of kings, he's the Lord of lords, and he stands ready to offer himself today to all who would come to him in repentance and faith. And when you come to him in repentance and faith, when you repent of your sins, and you come to Christ, and you you commit your life to him, it's an amazing thing that happens. His grace covers a multitude of sins. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you here have a multitude of sins? Don't raise your hand. We all know we have a multitude of sins. And only Jesus can cover those with his cross. And God's not frustrated by our sin, but he's overcome our sin through Jesus and he frees us to be able to worship him in spirit and truth. You know, I think a lot of times Christians think this. God exists to make me happy and the only way to get to heaven is to be good. A lot of Christians operate that way. God exists to make me happy and the way to get to heaven is to be good. So if I'm just a good person and and God exists for my happiness, then that's the Christian life. That is idolatry and that's false gospel. God does not exist to make you happy. You exist to glorify God. And number two, (laughs) you don't get into heaven by being good. You get into heaven by trusting in what Christ has done for you. And so I'm reminded of that old... That old hymn. And let me just read it to you. And as I read this hymn, I want you to think about your life this morning. And I'm not saying, it's a weird way to prepare this sermon. How, I'm thinking in my head, now how many people out there are, are, are superstitious this morning at Emmanuel? Probably not a lot of you are superstitious. So I knew coming in that, you know, none of you probably brought your lucky rabbit's foot or whatever, but all of us have sin in our lives that need the gospel. So listen to this hymn. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, brighter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Would you at this moment, this morning, receive that grace and experience the grace that covers a multitude of sin? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And as you spend time alone this morning with the Lord, It's an opportunity for you to ask the Holy Spirit to do a deep work in your heart to show you where your trust is. Now, you may not be superstitious this morning, but who are you trusting? Are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting in your money? Are you trusting in a relationship? Are you trusting in a career? Where's your ultimate trust this morning? Or is it in the providence of the living God who's working all things out for his glory and for your good? Now, if you're not a believer here this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you've never repented of your sins and come to faith in Christ and you've never placed your faith, you can't say that yet. Your greatest need this morning is to be reconciled to God. Your greatest need this morning is to have your sins forgiven. Your greatest need is to, to, to be removed out from under the, the wrath of God who has the right to pour out his justice upon you because of your sin. That's your greatest need. And that need can be met through repenting of that sin and trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And when you do that... Because of the cross of Christ, you have forgiveness of your sins and you're, you're restored into a right relationship with the living God. That's your greatest need. So, so maybe during this time, you just need to cry out to, to, to ask God to forgive you of your sins and come to him in faith this morning for the very first time. So I'm not exactly sure what you need to do this morning collectively. And so let's just spend a few moments in prayer asking the Holy Spirit to search your heart and just spend some time silently before the Lord. Father, we come before you this morning and I'm thankful that you're a God who's on his throne, you're God who rules and reigns, nothing takes you by surprise, and Father, because you've bound yourself in covenant love to us as your children through Jesus Christ, we're thankful that we can hear the promise that you will never leave or forsake us. And so Lord, there may be some in this room this morning that are struggling with sin. They're struggling with unbelief. They're struggling with trying to work things out in their own power, trying to chart their own life course. And they're failing miserably at that. I just pray that during this moment that you would just show them their need for you, Jesus. That they would trust in you. They would lean upon you. They would find in you their greatest joy and their greatest hope. And that we would believe in our heart of hearts, Lord, that you are sovereign, you are providential, and that you work out all things according to your plan and your glory, and it's for our good. Lord, I also pray for those in this room that are lost, that are not believers, that that don't have a relationship with you, Jesus, through faith and repentance. That today would be their day of salvation. the Holy Spirit, you would open the eyes of their heart to see their need for a Savior, and that you would come and show them the depth of their sin and their need to cry out for forgiveness, and they would find the hope that comes in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so, Holy Spirit, would you open eyes and, and Lord, would you save many this morning that are here through the power of the gospel? We thank you that you're sovereign? Lord, even as we leave this afternoon to go to India. It's easy to give lip service to your sovereignty. It's another thing to live in the danger of it. And what I mean by that, Lord, is no matter where we go on this earth that we may think is risky or that we may think is, is difficult, you're already there. and You've already got your plan in place. You're sovereignly working out your plan and we trust you, Lord. So I pray for our team as we leave this afternoon. So you have to keep our eyes fixed on a sovereign, providential God who's gone before us. But you got it all worked out. Your plan cannot be frustrated. Your plan cannot be thwarted. You're going to work all things out according to the purpose of your will, and we trust in that, Lord. It may not be the way we look at it. It may be bumps in the road according to our perspective, but we know, Father, you're perfect and you're sovereign and you're working it all out for your glory and for our good and for the good of the gospel to the nations. So we thank you for that. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.